Welcome to Justice Visions, the podcast about everything new in the domain of transitional justice. Justice Visions is hosted at the Human Rights Center of Ghent University. For more information, visit justicevisions.org. Welcome to Justice Visions and to this last episode of our short series on historical truth in the post-colonial context, where we've been looking at formal and informal truth initiatives that have been set up in a number of European countries to deal with both settler and overseas colonial legacies. And we've been talking in the past episodes about the Nordic countries, as well as about the case of Portugal. And in an earlier episode, we also covered the Belgian case together with Liliane Mupiei. And all of these cases, of course, are very different in nature, both in terms of the actors who promoted and engaged in the initiatives, but also in terms of the colonial past which these processes are dealing with, where in the Nordic countries we see that we're talking about settler welfare colonialism, whereas in Portugal and Belgium, for example, we're looking at cases of overseas imperial colonialism. And then, of course, also the methods and the approaches adopted in the various processes that we discussed are different. But what we've also seen is that despite all these differences, there are some elements cutting across different contexts. So for today's episode, we'll zoom out from these specific countries and the empirical questions surrounding them, and we'll be looking at the overarching topics and the kind of paradigm shifts inspired by these specific cases. And we will do this together with Olivia Rutazibwa, who was interviewed by Sira Payaspero during a recent visit to Belgium. Olivia is an assistant professor in human rights and politics at the London School of Economics, and her work focuses on ways to decolonize, especially international solidarity. Building on epistemic blackness as a methodology, she turns to recovering and reconnecting philosophies and practices of dignity and repair and retreat and post-colony to theorize solidarity anti-colonially. A very warm welcome, Olivia. Thank you so much for having me. I would like to start this conversation talking about your work, in particular about the decolonizing strategy framework, which seems extremely relevant when we think about how, and more importantly, why different actors engage with historical truth-seeking initiatives in the post-colonial state. When I think about the work of these initiatives, the framework keeps coming back to me. Could you tell us a bit more about this framework and how do you see it linked with historical truth initiatives? I don't think I would ever have called it a framework uh, myself. It's more that I was trying to find a language for myself, an analytical language, I guess, to think what could decolonization look like when we do research or when we try to engage the world, make sense of the world, anything like that. And I came to it through the long struggle of my 12 years of PhD work. <laughs> But I was interested in international relations, especially the relations between the European Union, Sub-Saharan Africa. And you end up somehow in development studies then, even though you don't want to study that necessarily. And I was inspired at the very end of that PhD uh, by the work of a colleague of mine, Mira Sabaratnam, who approached decolonization or decoloniality as a whole set of strategies that you can keep in the back of your mind when you're doing research. Who do you choose to engage? Where do you start the story? I think she had like five different entry points and I made them into three to make it even more simple. And trying to think what are the different levels of, of knowledge making that we need to make very explicit when we try to decolonize. But the other aspect of it is the fact to keep on realizing that when we try to decolonize within research or analysis, It's just a tiny corner of the whole decolonial project that society should engage with, right? And I think state and civil society initiatives are obviously much bigger maybe than just research. But at the level of research, I was thinking philosophically we engage with 
not always explicitly, but questions of how we think the world is. How do we get to these questions or this understanding of how the world works that's very much informed by how we produce knowledge or how we engage knowledge? And that's sometimes quite literally, who do we give the microphone to? Who don't we? Who is systematically out of the picture? So that's the epistemological aspect of it, to try and think mostly who's not around the table rather than whose voices are overrepresented. But then I was thinking those two are very much at the level, again, of, of cognition, of thinking, but to not lose sight of the fact that even decolonization within research should really foreground the purpose. The decolonial approach is very much about be explicit about the extent to which you see your project either contributing to the status quo or actively be against it. And the status quo is then defined as a colonial status quo. In the last two episodes of this mini-series, we have seen how in most cases, these formal initiatives are respond to the demands that civil society organizations have been advocating for decades. And on the other hand, informal initiatives often, if not always, emerge to challenge the inaction of the state. I would like to ask you, how do you see this relationship in between formal and informal initiatives? I've been thinking about this specifically, I think, after the murder of George Floyd in 2020. And I was actually at that time in South Africa and I was looking at the rest of the world reacting to something that unfortunately was not new. I think for the last two decades, we've been writing op-eds about these things. We've been screaming from the rooftops that these things happen, continue to happen, explained it often the same things. I think the biggest challenge is to think how do we transform the momentum in something that sticks. It helps for me to think about it in more cyclical terms, in terms of a lot of the work that we, my generation in their 40s, have been able to do, builds on the work and the successes of those that came before us and vice versa. And then the state navigates that with different levels of opportunism, political salience at that particular moment, but it's also very fleeting, right? So when that interest evaporates, maybe funding stops as well, whether it's the state or whether it's our universities that want to decolonize everything now, or whether it's companies that they have diversity plans in their mind, all of that. If you walk into these spaces with a purpose, then it's not about the amount of good or bad intentions the individuals in these structures might have, but how can we get what we want? It's about being pragmatic about these things. And maybe also accept that we might not see the full picture or the full, like it's not a linear thing that, you know, if we do X, Y, Z, and then we're successful and then we're all decolonized, that will never happen. But being intentional about trying to contribute that a large amount of people can survive in dignity, this global order that was not designed for that to happen. I think that's, for me, the crux of the decolonial project. I'm listening to your answer and I inevitably think one of the common objectives it is to achieve social change, right? But as you were saying, there are very different actors that engage in these sort of initiatives and they might give meanings to this seemingly shared notion of social change. Are we all speaking the same language? What do actors mean by achieving social change or by pursuing social change? How do these meanings can relate to one another? I think social change might be too wide, right? Let's say that you are in a progressive moment in history where the state is on the progressive side, they give social services and all of that. Conservative forces in society, but also in political parties at that time, they also are advocating for social change. So often when we use social change, we assume that it's a progressive move. It isn't. So I think that that might not be sufficient for us as a vision or as a goal. 
And so the social change that we look for is one that dismantles colonial power dynamics. The claim would be that even though we had formal decolonization and all of that, there is a continuity in colonial violence that's embedded in many of our institutions. So I would say that on the whole, we might have individuals within our different institutions, even in government, that might be personally committed to wanting progressive or anti-colonial social change, but institutions in and of themselves have never been built for change. Structures are put in place to make sure that not too much changes, right? Again, to come to the moment of George Floyd's murder, Black Lives Matters, we see our governments suddenly being open to have a Lumumba Square or any of these things. We have to assume that part of that has much more to do with a need to be able to stay as a player than generally wanting social change. But it's actually the organizational understanding that if we don't jump on that wagon, we become irrelevant. Hence, it's important for us to have a progressive message and to contribute to that. So I think that's really the balancing act that as activists or as thinkers we have to do, how to recognize when status quo is at play, even when seemingly we seem to be making all this progress. Just to tease the topic a bit more, right? So let's assume that we have these historical truth initiatives, whether formal or informal, that are working towards the dismantlement of colonial dynamics. With this assumption, in which ways do you see that historical truth can contribute to this dismantling of the colonial dynamics? The historical truth is a tool, it's not necessarily an institution in and of itself. And then, let's say, a government can organize a truth commission and that commission will be an institution, right? So that might be already a good distinction to make. But as an anti-colonial strategy, forms of truth-telling, and I think truth should be sort of in the plural because it's very difficult to just, you know, also aim for one truth or something like that, which is violent in and of itself. And I will give the example, again, that I'm most, I guess, familiar with is the one to do with what the international industry around aid and development is set out to do. Classic handbooks would start in 1950, modernization theories, after the war and all of that, and the different stages of development, World Bank comes in, IMF, whatever. So that's somehow the introduction to development studies. Many books are organized around that. At some point when engaging more with decolonial thought, I asked myself the ontological question, where do we start the story? So if you want to start the story about fighting poverty, you might also be interested in how we got to this super unequal world, right? So that's why I started now in first year, the introductory classes in 1492, rather than in 1950, with the modernization series. It's an example of truth-telling in the sense that you will also teach first and foremost where all the choices were made historically to extract wealth from one side of the world to the other, rather than immediately start with so-called solutions to that poverty. So for me, that's an example of a historical truth-telling that goes way beyond trying to point who are the good guys or the bad guys. But let's assume that we're all the good guys, very gendered. <laughs> and then what is it that we want to see changed? But we need other stories to be able to do that. I see that there might be other objectives that are at play when these formal and informal initiatives are being set up. For example, acknowledgement, recognition of these different temporalities, different histories, the wrongs that have been committed, reparations, reforms, all of which could be aligned with the core objective of transitional justice. And indeed, we are witnessing an increased use of this paradigm to think about historical injustice. This was the case, for example, of the Belgian Special Commission on its colonial past. 
in which you were invited to join the group of experts, but you declined for reasons that you explain in an open letter. My question here would be, do you see the use of the transitional justice paradigm suitable to think about historical injustices emerging from colonialism? Or are there other frameworks that are more relevant for this type of inquiry? We might have a particular definition or even historical praxis of what we would file under transitional justice, but nothing stops us from having a more expansive both practice and definition. So in that sense, I'm not in favor or against transitional justice, but I think it's, a, again, a good tool to try and think through what some initiatives might be wanting to do or not. And so for me, the expert, the Congo Expert Commission, it might be one of the first times that I think of it in terms of transitional justice, because I did not recognize it as such. I don't think they were framing it like that in the beginning, but I can see it now that that could be framed as something that, that they had in mind. But also because I, I think also the way it was set up, that it could never even reach the minimal conditions of something to do with transitional justice. I guess what worried me the most is that it, for me, again, it was an example of how this initiative that people had been asking for for so long could so easily be deployed for the status quo. And in the letter, I explain, you know, the tiny examples of how I think that would happen, but who sets the agenda, who sets the timings, the speed, who gets to decide who's going to be around the table or not, and who is completely blindsided by their own lack of expertise to even have this conversation. A lot of these small decisions showcased how a seemingly revolutionary act ended up confirming and reconfirming the status quo. And I think that, again, it's useful, even when we look at any type of initiative of transitional justice, right? It will always contain potentials for actual radical change and potentials where the status quo is, is reproduced. It's both. Both things are present. I think the radicalness of being forced to speak out loud that what was wronged by people that had been in positions of power for so long. It's not something we can dismiss either. Similarly, like I said, the 60s, the actual decolonization, kicking out the colonizers, it's not a small victory, right? It's huge. But everything we can see after that is how the system works through the same channels to keep everything the same, right? So I don't think that it's going to be either transitional justice that is the right thing or not. It's the meaning that we give to it and how vigilant we are in how the language and the practices of it contribute to the status quo or not. To me, there are two aspects of the traditional justice framework that really stand out because of their relevance in the debates around colonial injustice, and they're very much linked with what you were saying just there. These are the notion of disruption and the notion of accountability. Let me try and formulate this into separate questions. So first, while the notion of disruption appears to be implicit in the work of paradigmatic transitional justice, what does it mean when we transfer it in the post-colonial state? What exactly is being disrupted and by whom? And probably linked to what you were saying there, are we counting on the state to disrupt its own status quo to redress the colonial injustices? My first reaction would be we can think of the state on the one hand as official structures, the political parties, the people that work in that, but as a citizen, whatever that might mean, to have the non-passive approach to that would be to keep on studying what that state is doing or not doing, knowing that, again, it's a structure that exists to stay, to keep itself in power. But the shape that we give it is a shared responsibility, right? So we can, the, the same way that indirectly 
we demanded this Congo Commission at some point in history was created, right? It's, it was not just a state that thought of it itself. Similarly, you know, we have some instances where we can reject what the state is doing or not doing. I think for a lot of citizens in Africa, then they could ask for accountability of their leaders, and they are. But those leaders are often structurally first accountable to international organizations rather than to their own people. And the flows of money, the little basis of tax and all of that. So within that, if we then try and think about transitional justice as accountability, it's much more muddy in a way, right? But I would agree that some form of accountability should be at the heart of it. We don't have to assume that it's something that the state at some point will willingly give to us. It's something we have to demand. Accountability as something that is demanded rather than good states doing it automatically. Picking up on this notion of accountability, when we think about the whole structure of colonialism and how embedded it is in societies, what kind of accountability are we thinking about? When we think about justice, especially, you know, the, the westernized systems, the different systems of justice that we have, we have a very, um, I'm going to simplify it and it's, no, I'm going to butcher it and it's going to sound horrible for people that actually have legal <laughs> background or knowledge. But, you know, the notion of people need to be punished or rewarded, right? And you have the perpetrator and victims. And, and I know it's much more complicated than that. But what I have been learning slowly by engaging with when in decolonial thought we actually advocate for knowledges from outside the Western worlds or, you know, like at least an expansion of that or a pluriversal approach to knowledges is very much this notion of there are other ways to think about even the same concepts, whether it's accountability or justice, whatever. Those that are focused on repair and on relationality and kinship, for instance, if we think of those ideas together with accountability, you have a different type of accountability that is not just, I will hold you to account because I can identify you as a perpetrator and then to perpetuity, you will be in debt to me to make something right. There is part of that there, right? And obviously, especially I think when we direct our demands to those that are so obviously much more powerful than us and sitting on all of the resources that are supposed to be all ours, then I don't think that that language is too damaging. But I think as a society or as a goal in general, the idea of accountability as something that you have in a context of kinship or in context of relationality, but these ideas of relationality and kinship what happens if we put that at the center of our accountability conversations rather than individual rights or rights that an individual has in society? I really like this approach, especially broadening this idea of accountability to make it more conceptually thicker and richer, but also to broaden it to the collectivity. As we are approaching the end of the episode, I have one last question I would like to ask you that we ask all our interviewees. And this one is, where do you as a scholar look for inspiration? I think the first answer to that for me, weirdly enough, would be my classroom. I feel it as a privilege to have always a, an X amount, a group of people to whom supposedly you're supposed to share your expertise. And I have to say that over the years, it's made me hopeful to the extent that, you know, you can actually see young people generally committed to try and think differently, ask different questions but also how a lot of the insights that we need are already located amongst them. It makes me hopeful to see or to be reminded that a lot of, of what we need to know is already in society. We don't have to invent it. And so, and that's an idea about 
knowledge cultivation that is not necessarily central in academia because, you know, we, we are all rewarded to be the first one to have said something, to have published first on it and all of that. So I guess once I got that insight, also from reading, you know, colleagues like Robbie Shilliam, who did a lot of work in international relations and decolonization, he was inspired by Maori thinking about knowledge cultivation as something that is just having to unearth the knowledges that are already there. And the other is obviously that we seem to have much more a license today to not have to be confined to the usual white canonical thinkers. I have nothing against them in and of themselves as an identity marker, right? That's not even the thing. But the joy that comes from being allowed to start knowledge somewhere else, add so much more and redimension them to a set of thinkers that are part of our collective way of thinking. I find that exciting. And that also includes the fact that a lot of non-academic knowledges are finding their way into the academy, which makes it much more interesting. I'm very happy that we can include films and videos and music and all of that and poetry. I think many of us are actually enjoying a lot of the labor that has been done by those that came before us to make space for us to make different choices. So the real challenge is, I don't know, are we brave enough to actually do radically different things within the academy or within our activism? Or do we get stuck at just only saying what we're not allowed to do? This is such a great note to leave our audiences with. Thank you so much for such an interesting conversation, Olivia. Thank you for having me. This was our last episode of Justice Visions for this year. We'll be back in the new year with a couple of interesting collaborations with other podcasts, as well as our regular programming. Stay tuned. This was Justice Visions. To re-listen to this episode or to browse our archive, visit our website justicevisions.org or subscribe now via Spotify or Apple Music. Justice Visions is made possible through generous funding of the European Research Council.